Welcome back to episode number 34 of the Boxing One Podcast, where we discuss Christ, sports, and culture through the lens of the gospel. I'm your host, John Richards, and I'm here with my co-host, Chris Lassiter. What up, C. Lass? What up, Jay Rich? Man, you've been all around the world this week. Oh, man, not around the world. Just in the wonderful Tar Heel state of North Carolina. We're going to talk about some Tar Heels maybe tonight. But I just want to say this, man. Episode 34, we can't disagree on this one, right? If you had to name the greatest 34 in the entire sports world, who is it going to be? Sweetness, you in Chicago, man. Your answer better be Walter Payton. It's got to be Sweetness, man. One of the best to ever do it, RIP. I really want to read that book. It's on my, my reading list for this year. Have you read it? No, I haven't. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, he's one of the most intriguing sports figures of all time and one of the best athletes on the field, hands down. Absolutely. Definitely the best athlete with a jerry curl ever. Like we giving him that like hands down. Oh, right? and without a doubt. Any other jerry? No, AC Green. No, no AC Green. We're talking about Walter <laughs> Payton and the best athlete with jerry curl. Hands down. Period. Speaking of sports, we gotta jump in our first topic and talk about the NBA season. Both NBA heads. Uh, we love the the league. We love what they're doing. But we got to ask ourselves this question after the season's over, right? And now that we're in the summer months and the off season's here, if you had to choose, do you think that we've had a better NBA season? Or do you think even so far, because the draft happened this week, that the off season has kind of been a better story for you, Chris? What do you think? Well, just to provide that question with a little context, like I've always been a huge NBA draft guy. It's always been one of the biggest events so much of my childhood was me and my man, IV, growing up dreaming about our names getting called. We always watched the draft together almost every year. So that was huge to me. And I've, I've told, if you've listened to the podcast at all, like Steph Curry's dad grew up in my area. So it's been phenomenal for me to see the Currys. But I, I think most years I would easily say, hands down, the season is more important than the off season. But I've never seen an offseason this intriguing with so many, like, there's always speculation. But this year, it just seems like all those things we do normally when we're speculating are actually happening. So I still probably would have to say the season. That's easy for me to say and not you because I actually do tend to root for Golden State. But I'm interested to hear what you think. What's been better this season? Russ, uh, the rookies, Golden State, the rematches or the offseason with the big trades, all the speculation, LeBron might be leaving again. What you got? I ain't got time to go into the details, but let me just say that Kawhi went down. Next thing I know, Kawhi's cutting his braids off. He's a, <laughs> he's a, he's a shell of him, his former self because of Zaza's random um, jumping down underneath his legs and changing the course of that series. So I watched the playoffs after that point with a little interest as a basketball fan, but there's always that those what ifs, right? This summer, though, is really intriguing for me. So for me, I think I'm going to say offseason because, one, the Spurs have a chance to get someone who I don't necessarily like on any other team, but I would like him on the Spurs. And if that happens, that would be great. And that's, inc that's talking about Chris Paul, who is getting ready to opt out of his contract. And Pal Gasol pulled a David West and decided he was going to not pick up his player option. So we got some money out there, man, waiting to spend it. We'll see how it happens. So 
as a Spurs fan, thinking about next season, I think this offseason is definitely the most intriguing for me. I would say that. And so you're, you're all in on Chris Paul. Do you think that the Spurs will get you to be part of that recruiting process? They might, man. They, they might call up Jay Rich because I was just in Wake Forest, man. You see the connection? You see it? I I'm do. I do. I'm telling you, Tim Duncan went to Wake Forest. Hey, I'm telling you, it might happen. Hey, everybody! Oh, I'm to, starting to see it all now. It's all everybody, so clear now. <laughs> everybody trying to get off the Clippers anyway, man. Blake Griffin opting out. It's a fire sale over there, man. Since Lonzo Ball came in town, him and Lavar oh, walking man. like he's somebody eighty-six year old granddaddy. Oh, he is the best. Yeah, he is so funny. <laughs> Why is that, guys? Why did he throw his hat into the crowd at the draft? See, that's what the, that's what the playoffs were missing. That's the excitement we've got. This year so far with the offseason. I'm excited for the Summer League. I'm also excited for the three-on-three. Which one are you more excited for? Summer League, uh, Orlando and Chicago, and the Phoenix League. Or where's the, the one on the West Coast? I think the one on the West Coast is Vegas, right? Vegas. I'm, a little bit, I'm a little bit nostalgic, though. I, I like this three-on-three league, man. Looking looking at Rashard Lewis and Kenyon Martin and AI and, and the homie from the hometown even is in it. Kwame Brown is is hanging out and I want to see what him and Oak, how they mix it up after their uh, interesting <laughs> relationship in Washington. So I think I'm going to go with the big three, man. Ice Cube has a great idea. We'll see how, see how it pans out. Yo, <laughs> wasn't at one point Richard Lewis, the highest played player in the NBA. Unfortunately, he was like the Joe Johnson of the nineties, two thousands, right? He was like Steph Curry the year before that. I just remember he was spotting up hitting threes everywhere came back and got the biggest contract in the world i said what is going on the nba was going on that's what happened all right at some point in the future we got to talk about the draft but we're not going to do it on this episode i just felt like we needed to talk about the season and the off season i'm on team off season apparently you're on team season barely but you definitely are looking forward to some off season stuff going on over the summer right what you got for the awards because they come out monday right all right, I'm going to give you my quick ones, right? So MVP, Word. I'm going with the homie, Russell Westbrook. Psych. I wish you <laughs> <laughs> You know I'm going with Kawhi, man. Even despite all the haters, I'm going to go with Kawhi uh, on the uh, the MVP, man. Defensive player of the year, go and go bear. Um, most improved player, uh, that's always a toss-up. I don't know, man. Maybe uh, – the Greek freak. It's got to be the Greek freak. Yeah. And he uh, thrust himself into superstardom. Yeah. What about you? Quick categories. What you think? Coach of the year. I really don't have a clue who that'll be. It can't be Steve Kerr because I know he really be hurting, but he missed a lot of time. Um, MVP, I think it's going to be Russ. I would not cry if it was Kawhi. James Harden, I just can't celebrate. He put up gaudy numbers, but he got outplayed in the last game of the season when it counted and then went to the club. That's just a guy I can't vote for MVP. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, I really do think, like, Russ had more MVP-type moments. And he's a dog, man. Like, uh, he's must-be TV when he's playing. He's aggressive. I don't think he thinks through the game of basketball. Like, I would like my point guard, too, but I love watching him play. So... Jay Rich, for anyone who has been paying any attention to the news, whether you wanted to or not, um, it's forced us to revisit a topic that we had done once before in the podcast, and that's the case of uh, Philando Castile. And um, 
I think everyone's pretty much familiar with everything that's involved with the case now. Um, the officer was not charged, and um, that's been waiting. Uh, it's continued this narrative um, that we've been on in our country for a few years where it's been very vocal, but I wanted to take kind of a different approach to it because I thought maybe this would be healthy because uh, before anything, you and I would both say like, hey, we're Christ before we're a color, anything else. And I was just wondering like how, as we just like try to process this, how does the gospel speak to this? So I was just curious, say you're in a conversation and some of your uh, white brothers in Christ sit you down and was like, hey, Jay Rich, I'm really just trying to understand how you're processing this. Like I'm seeing it differently than you're seeing it. Maybe they're seeing it the same, but um, how do you think the gospel comes to bear on both uh, our white brothers and sisters in Christ who might be taking it from one perspective and from us who might be taking it from a different perspective? I'll just give you the floor and I'd love to hear how you're processing that or what you would say in those scenarios. I think the important thing is you know, for me, when when talking about that and having those conversations and I have the conversations on both sides. Right. So you you talk to the um, Anglo brothers and sisters about the hurt and the pain in the black community. And then you talk to your brothers who are angry, frustrated and um, don't want anything to do with any type of reconciling work or any conversations about that, about what the gospel brings to bear on that. The important part for me is being able to take the spectacles or the lenses of the alternative perspective and actually placing them in front of that person's eyes so they could see the alternative perspective. So for the white brothers and sisters, it's, it's like, hey, listen, this is a systemic problem. It's something that we um, deal with every single day. I mean, we saw this a week and a half ago at SBC, right? The whole race issue came up and they were like, oh, we, we addressed this already. It should be done. But no, <laughs> every instance of racism should be something that every Christian speaks up about every time. Um, you should never get tired of racism because racism doesn't get tired of existing, period. So, and then on the other end, if you're talking about our, our black brothers and sisters, you gotta be able to, demonstrate to them what the gospel brings to bear on issues of race and anger, frustration, and how um, Jesus is the one who tears down that partition, that wall in the middle of all of that, including where it could be a situation where someone who with race of motives does something to a brother and sister and they wind up dead. I mean, it's a, it's a terrible situation um, but as you mentioned, um, for us, we have to run to and kneel at the cross and we have to bring brothers and sisters with us who have the anger um, and the frustration and other brothers and sisters who have the, I really don't understand why this is an issue for you. So we're holding their hands as we run to the cross and say, this is how we're supposed to deal with this issue by bringing it to Jesus knowing that we live in this fallen world that needs to be redeemed, but knowing that he's the one who is at work in the already not yet nature of the redemption of humankind. Yeah, I think I would just add, um, you can't really put any adjective in front of the gospel and still have the gospel. 
right? So um, it can't be a prosperity gospel. It can't be a poverty gospel. Like it's just the gospel. And I think one thing that people get apprehensive about is if you talk justice, all of a sudden, like, hey, are you preaching or are you like adopting a social gospel? No, like we have one true gospel, but that gospel has applications. And so like, we're not trying to embrace a gospel that's a social gospel. We're just saying we're embracing a gospel that has social applications. And I think that's huge too, because like, I can understand what people are a little bit fearful of that in the church. But at the same time, we have to realize like, that at some point the gospel has to put on boot leather and be walked out. Yeah. I mean, you know, the video released of the dash cam and we're all still kind of processing that. But uh, one of the, the things that I think you and I feel responsible doing is making sure that those conversations don't become yelling matches, but become common ground upon which we can have discussions, talk about um, the things that have happened and move forward in Christ together with brothers and sisters on different sides of the aisle, at least in terms of race um, yeah. and, and what that looks like. And that can be tricky on social media because like a lot of my friends on social media aren't professing Christians. And I do think for the most part, a lot of my friends, whether it's just respect for me or common decency will say like, Hey, like I'm not going to shout at this person who I disagree with. Um, but then, I mean, even just our, I just felt myself feeling weary from having to moderate all the comments as we try to like foster healthy dialogue and just saying like, oh my goodness, like there's comment number 143 and like, um, I, I might need to just steal away and like pray and lament over what's going on and not feel the need to moderate in this situation. But, um, it was definitely heavy and, um, Hopefully it's everything that's pushing out right now will help us to come together at the end that these deaths won't be in vain. Amen. All right, man. So we're, we're both writers. We love writing. Um, we feel like God has called us to writing in some capacity. We're both published authors and we enjoy it and we attempt to do it for God's glory. Right. So I know that there are people out there who also enjoy writing or, who feels called to write. So I want to ask you as an author and, and someone who has written books, plural now, and we'll talk about that. Uh, what advice do you have for someone who actually feels called to write as a Christian for God's glory? I, I, I think one thing is, I think it's, it's the same things that you do when you test all the gifts. Like um, my church asked me to do a lot of things um, maybe this weekend I'm doing church setup. I'll help with the tables and the chairs and all that, but they've yet to ask me um, to be on the choir. And it's because they know I'm tone deaf. They know I can't sing uh, any of those things. So um, evidence, I think you just have to see some evidence that um, God has wired you that way. But once you feel that like, Hey, like people can affirm that gift in you that they're encouraged by your words consistently on Facebook or wherever your words might be posted, um, then you just start to go for it. Um, and then you think about who you want to reach and what's the most accessible means to reach that person. Is it a blog? Is it a book? Um, if it turns out to be a book, I think one of the biggest things is 
uh, people never just start, you know, um, just, you got to kind of start and fumble through it. It's kind of like getting in shape. Like at some day you just have to get off the couch, you know? Um, and so typically what I tell people is if you keep hitting the delete button, uh, you're never going to write a book. So, Amen. Uh, you just have to kind of get your thoughts out there. It might be sloppy. It might not be well crafted. Um, but just keep going forward and get to the word count first and then fix it later. So I got a couple of things that I would probably suggest for anyone who's interested in writing and particularly for God's glory. Uh, one, I, I would say to find your lane. Um, once you find your lane, your lane is your passion. I write my passion. Whatever you're passionate about, you should write about. And once you find that lane, um, stay in it. I found in the past, once I've when I've left that lane that I've been, if I write about cooking and horticulture, no one's gonna listen because that's not my lane. Um, so, <laughs> so, so I have to find my blind spots. Even when people ask me to write on something, I have to admit to myself that that's not what God has called me to. Um, and that's a blind spot for me and someone else might be better equipped to deal with that. Um, the other thing I would say is just write, be consistent in writing. Even when you're thinking about writing a book, start small, do some blogging, um, consistently blog every week and also just cherish being anonymous. I, I can't stress that enough. Like I've blogged for years with five readers, <laughs> six readers, um, so anonymity kind of just uh, can creep in and, and have you to doubt your writing. But there are people out there who will um, who will read it. So hone your craft in that anonymous time. And I promise it will come out better on the other side. Um, the other thing I think I like what Ernest Hemingway says when he says um, there's nothing to writing. All you have to do is sit down and bleed. <laughs> but I think a lot of people bleed without doing the other B that I think is important, which is to bandage. Um, and that's one of the things about writing. You have to be pretty clear and concise in what you're saying. I've sat down and vomited on my screen several nights and I've had to clean it up. So as a writer, I'd say that all those things kind of help you to hone your craft and also bring God glory because he wants you to be the best writer that you could be. So those are kind of some practical tips for writing that I would give anyone who wants to start on that journey or in that yeah. process. I, I would just add finally too, that the gospel has to like come to bear in our writing ministries as well and say like, Hey, like my identity isn't wrapped up in selling more books than CS Lewis. And um, it's not, if it doesn't take off, you know, and it wasn't a waste. Like I did this, um, this is my fish, five fish, two loaves. This is what I have to offer. You know, um, I work as hard as I can at it on the writing end, the marketing end, all of that stuff. But at the end of the day, like I'm not what writing says about me. I'm what the gospel says I am, you know. So um, if if you don't sell a million books, like that's not a reason to be discouraged if you did it from grace. You know what I'm saying? Like not to achieve something, not to prove you were something in God's kingdom. I think that's important. Yeah, and I think that was your motivation on your latest project, right? Could you could you kind of expound on that? You have a new children's book coming out, um, and it 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 is definitely a, something that you haven't done before, but it also is something that you have a passion about. Right. So I think 
I've always kind of written to like a niche group. And so I know that means like I'm purposely like alienating part of an audience that might be larger. But it's just what you said, like I'm writing about what I'm passionate about. And so one of the things that's been really cool in my lifetime, I guess in the 70s, you just saw this move of God with all these hippies coming to Christ. In our generation, it's been all these people um, in hip hop. And there's always been Christian hip hop, but there hasn't always been like more and more resources. And I can't rap. So I've been like, hey, I can resource the church through a writing ministry. Um, as more and more urban people come, there need to be more resources in that context. And so the first time I tried to write a theology book that was kind of like, hey, this is just like an introductory level to Christology, ecclesiology, um, some of those things, soteriology that's accessible for the hip-hop influenced person um and here's where you and i would differ like i love fiction i think fiction does a lot i think um, god uses our imagination in amazing ways and he informs them and they help us grow in godliness i'm praying for you <laughs> so i wanted to write a kid's series um that introduced doctrine and obviously the first one i'll send is to your house but i'll probably uh write it and mail it to your wife hoping she can read it to the kids before you get off work and come home and throw it away since it's fiction uh, <laughs> if you wrote it i'm gonna keep it hey that's love right there bro yeah so that was it i just want to introduce kids to doctrine but just wrap it in fiction the importance of uh, ur urban churches in our communities and those churches being healthy so it's just about a uh, man and his family, they move in to be part of a church and they just fall in love with the neighborhood kid who's always into something and wherever that leads. So it's great, man. And that's releasing next week, June 28th, correct? Yeah, man. So I'm excited. Good I'm stuff, excited. Man. I'm excited. Excited Thanks, bro. for I appreciate you. it. No worries. We'll we'll definitely put a link of that to that in the show notes if you guys want to pick up a copy of my homie's new book. Um, and he's doing it definitely for God's glory. Absolutely. Um, and I appreciate him for for his heart and passion for for writing ministry, even in the fiction context. I'm still praying for you, man. I pray for you every day that you will just um, see how much godly you would be if you embrace fiction. So. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right. Speaking of reading, uh, usually we try to make sure we provide some resources to some of our folks who um, are interested in, in hearing what we're reading with our, our bookshelves or even what we're listening to. So, so Chris, what's on your list this summer to get down and dig deep into? Ooh, uh, on my list for this summer, a lot of the times I like to pick things that I love to read about. And a lot of those things are theological. Um, this summer, I'm kind of dedicating more time, and I've, I've mentioned this on the podcast too, um, to areas that I just feel like God is saying like, hey, you can't fail in these things. So a lot of the resources are going to be bent towards um, shepherding your child's heart, Ted Tripp, Paul Tripp, um, and books like The Exemplary Husband. So I've really had that focus going through and re-going through Art Artazertia's series on spirit-empowered preaching on marriage and really trying to lay my life down and be the husband who my wife needs me to be. Um, but I'm also, I know there's a movie, a biopic on Tupac that just came out, but as part of my writing career, I've been trying to 
go back through and read biographies on Biggie and Tupac for another book that I'm working on. So um, that's kind of been consuming my reading time right now. Speaking of consuming my reading time, I just got done reading 13 books for um, an exam I was preparing for. So um, I did that over an eight week period. It was crazy. So now I'm back into my quote unquote leisure reading period. And I've, I've kind of been on the, the sports biographies, man. I'm, I'm not sure if I mentioned this before, but uh, going through Blood Brothers um, sports bio on Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X and how they were so closely connected um, in their circles and how Cassius Clay came to become Muhammad Ali. Such a compelling read. And I know this is like Christian resources we're supposed to be giving folks, but here's the connection point I made. I see the impact the Nation of Islam has had on young black men um, over the years. And I think about how ways I can apologetically um, bring the gospel to bear on young African-American men's lives that impact them in ways that are far greater than the nation. But it's such a great read. Um, And I'm going through it and really appreciating the writing style of the author. So it's good stuff. I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but I mean, this line, it's always stuck out with me and it's always hurt. Um, an ambassador had an old album called The Thesis, and he says that the nation of Islam has a better system of faith integration, but just no resurrectional message of grace that can save men. In other words, he was mm-hmm. just saying like, hey, like they're all about transforming the city. like. They're not coming into the city and leaving the city as hopeless as they found it. But like what they don't have is a savior or what they don't have is grace in, in the context of the Christian. And he's saying like, hey, we have a better and truer message. Yet, um, where are we out on those blocks? And that really uh, stuck with me. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, you see them on the pounding the block, um, trying to make an effect change. So it's definitely convicting for sure. All right, closing shout outs, man. Who you shouting out this week? I got a couple of shout outs, man. I'll make them quick though. Uh, the homie Jay Hart's wife, Erin Hartman, uh, one of two players from my high school on the female side ever to play D1 basketball, was on a 28 and 0 Liberty University team um, that ran into Shamik Holdsclaw in Tennessee. But that's another story. But today's her birthday. So a happy birthday to Mrs. Hartman. And I hope it's a great one. And also, I just want to shout out Lamp Mode. I do some writing for them. But I feel like they just went above and beyond with helping me promote some of the book stuff in the last few days. So I just wanted to say thank you, brothers. I really appreciate your ministry, what it's meant to me over the years, but also helping me with the book project as well. Shout out to Lamp Mode. So my shout out goes to my brother, LeBron James, for coming home, buddy. It was time to come home. It was time. And he looks happier. Did you see the video of him like frolicking about with his kids and throwing water balloons with the bald head? He's like, I'm a new man now. I don't have to worry about not coming home. He has finally come home. And uh, we'll see We'll see if that makes him meaner, uh, a little bit more angry playing basketball. But I think it's a good look for him. Were you ever a sneakerhead, Jay Rich? Not really, man. I bought sneakers for functionality. So if you ever wear a sneakerhead, you knew like um, the stress between feeling like you always had to cop some new sneakers, but then like to wear them without getting them dirty. And like just like the maintenance and the stress level, I feel like 
the sneakerhead can relate to LeBron's hairline in that way. Like, man, <laughs> I'm always trying to do something to keep this hairline, to keep the hairline jokes at a minimal. Like, when, like just come home, be free, man. Just throw on an old pair of sneakers and don't worry about if it's going to rain today, man, you know? Perfect analogy. I wish Chris, I wish Carlos Boozer would have heard that. Carlos, yeah. <laughs> he was worse than LeBron, but he just wasn't as famous. But he was painting on hairlines, man. It was terrible. Terrible. Knowing you play something where it's going to run because you're going to sweat. Why would you do that? Exactly. All right. That's been the sweetness episode. Episode number 34 of the Boxing One podcast. Good to be hanging out with the homie C. Lass. Once again, his book comes out June 28th. I appreciate him for writing a children's book. Even though I don't do fiction, I'm going to have it on the bookshelf and I'm going to read it to my son. How about that? That's what's up, yeah. Catch us next go round on the Boxing One podcast, episode number 35. Haven't been very many of those jersey numbers, so I'm pretty sure we might even be on the same page on this one. We'll see who that is in the next episode. Make sure you go over to Facebook, join our closed group. We'll let you in the group. Also, follow us on Twitter at Boxing One Podcast. We appreciate all the love, feedback. Leave us a review and rating on iTunes if you can. And we hope to see you guys next go round on episode 35. Grace and peace to you.